It was just over a month that we had another story from Matthew that was a bit of a stretch for us practical Anabaptist Mennonites. Well, here's another one. You might recall my comments on the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan that comes across more like a mystical experience than anything that resembles discipleship or ministry or service to the poor or the many other ways we practice our practical faith. Well, here we go again, another mystical experience that's even harder for us to connect to. At least Jesus' baptism had a connecting point for those of us who have been baptized. But the transfiguration, how do you connect to that? Maybe some of you in your lifetime have had vivid and life-changing visions of Jesus standing before you, and if so, that's wonderful. You already have an in for grasping this story. I can't really say I've ever had any experience that parallels Matthew 17. So I need to come at it a different way. And I suspect that many of you are in my boat on this one. Again, it helps us to remember Matthew and the context in which this book emerged, Antioch of Syria, 70 AD or so. The church in Antioch was beleaguered, tormented on multiple fronts, and they were in conflict with one another, and much of it centered on the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Was Jesus the promised Messiah, the, now the exalted Lord of heaven, or was he the leader of a short-lived Jewish movement that had an impact while he was alive but ultimately turned out to be a lost cause, like many other Jewish movements at the time. This story in Matthew addresses that question head on by drawing a line connecting the mountain and the wilderness. Jesus' heavenly and messianic identity and his very human life that was full of suffering. This story gives courage to the persecuted church of Antioch, reassures them that they need not deny Jesus' messiahship in order to embrace his humanity and the agonizing reality of the cross. The bright, shining Mount of Transfiguration and the stark, barren wilderness of temptation are two faces of the same reality. God is equally present in both scenes, but God is encountered in very different ways. One without the other is a story half told. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we get a gleaming clear vision of this close connection between heaven and earth where the veil that separates us from God is very thin. But in the desert, we see the shadows of our humanity. In this space where God seems far away and we muck around in our messy life at the bottom of the mountain. To see this connection between the mountain and desert in Matthew, you don't really have to turn back to chapter 4 where Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert. You may recall that glory and suffering were connected there too. 
because Jesus was baptized and that voice came from heaven with light and sound and announcing his heavenly origin. And immediately in the next verse, he was whisked off to the desert to suffer and to be tried by the devil. Well, the same dynamic is going on in Matthew 17. The mountaintop experience takes place in the first part of chapter 17, but at the end of chapter 16, they are definitely not on the mountain. They are mucking around at the bottom, in the low places. Jesus talked about his future suffering and death, and Peter objected loudly, and Jesus responded by calling Peter Satan. One of the lowest points of Peter's life, I'm sure. Jesus reminded them all, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And in the very next words, we read, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are on the mountaintop. And they have the epitome of mountaintop experiences. So beautiful was that vision, that feeling, that sense of awe, that Peter attempts to preserve the moment, to make it stick. Lord, it's good to be here. Let's build three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This time, Jesus paid Peter no mind. He didn't even reply. And then they walked down the mountain again. And the you-know-what hit the fan. Life got messy again. In the span of a few verses, three things happened. Jesus intervenes after his disciples fail miserably in a healing ministry. Jesus breaks the news of his coming betrayal and crucifixion. And people pick a fight with Jesus over the temple tax. This is life as a disciple of Jesus. Up and down and up and down the mountain. I think we can identify with Peter's impulse to preserve life on the mountain. To build some kind of container that will hold and keep and protect this experience of the glory of God. And for almost two millennia already, churches have tried to do exactly that. Institutionalize the divine. Manage the glory of God. Make it permanent and predictable. Back in 2012, Irene and I visited Mount Tabor in Israel-Palestine, one of the sites that claimed to be the Mount of Transfiguration. As we walked up the mountain, we approached a towering building, the very stately Church of the Transfiguration. And engraved in marble on the front of the building was the exact scripture that we would just read this morning from Matthew 17, albeit in Latin. And inside, a lot more beauty and permanence trying to capture the glory of God that in Matthew 17 was fleeting. And I couldn't help but think, well, I guess Peter finally got the shelter he wanted to build. Isn't it 
a little ironic that a huge ornate marble structure sits there to memorialize a place of momentary glory where Peter was brushed off for trying to build a structure to contain that moment. Now, I'm not suggesting, of course, that building physical structures and memorials is a bad thing. They do have an important role in our aesthetic life, and our spiritual life. But at least in this case, there seems to be something ironic about that building in that place. It's not an accident that in the church liturgical year, Transfiguration Sunday comes three days before Ash Wednesday and the beginning of the season of Lent. There is intentionality there. One helps us prepare for the other. And both are necessary for our theology to be complete. Jesus is the divine and glorious sovereign of all creation. And Jesus lived a fully human life. And new suffering, pain, loneliness, despair, abandonment, loss, and joy, and wonder, and love, and delight, and humor. In three days from now, in the evening, we will be in this same space, marking ourselves with ashes. Remembering our mortality, our weakness, our sin. But today, we bask in glory. We remember the, our deep connection to the divine. And we celebrate it. The distance between Transfiguration Sunday and Ash Wednesday is purposely close. Because glory and suffering can coexist hand in hand. I think there's only so much I can say about this story that, with language that relies on rationality. Prose has its limits. One time, quite a few years ago, I preached our Transfiguration Sunday sermon in poetry, at least my own amateur free verse version of poetry. I decided to revisit those words this week and substantially rewrote a part of them to share with you now to finish my sermon this morning. It is good for us to be here. Peter, the man, impromptu plan in hand, gushed to the son of Nazareth, now awash in glory from another world, Lord, it is good to be here. Let me build some houses. This erstwhile fisherman, who once on a whim quit his boat to follow Jesus to who knows where, now wants to settle, build a place to stay, a structure to contain, protect, Preserve, fix in time and space this fleeting brush with heaven. Nothing new, this notion to build a container to house God's glory. 
Abraham stacked stones for an altar to mark his moment with God. Moses built a holy box to hold the holy presence. Solomon, a temple with pillars. Ah, pillars. From massive marble bases, they rise majestic, tall, immovable, supporting structures, monumental. In Matthew's Antioch, now Turkey's Antakya, walls, roofs, pillars, lie in rubble, trapping bittersweet memories of glory days. Containing heaven's glory is ever futile. Reflect it, yes. Capture, no. Like Peter, we seek pillars strong enough to hold whatever house we cherish. Or are the pillars we seek more like pipes, more like these shining ranks behind me? Not in organ pipes per se, but in the breath blowing through them is God's music heard. Pipe or pillar or house are but means by which God's free spirit moves where it will. Spirit breath has oft laid low earthly houses meant to enshrine a heavenly visitation. How then do we know if, like Peter, our pining for permanence builds houses that imprison God's free spirit, or if, like these pipes, our structure invites God's spirit wind to blow free. How do we know? Listen for the music. Will you join me now in these words of confession as we read together? Forgive us, God, when we linger too long by the waters and on the mountaintops, enthralled with the glory that flows from you. When we fail to listen to your voice leading and guiding us, shake us from our contentment and send us forward, endowed with your power. Amen. The God of Elijah, God of Moses and the God of Jesus desires mercy more than sacrifice and a contrite heart rather than burnt offerings. Love God and do the right thing and forgiveness shall be your friend and mercy your true companion. Amen. <laughs>